If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. There were enlightened people in these institutions, and because they were very distinctively Scottish, it meant that the Enlightenment in Scotland spoke with a distinctively Scottish voice. That was Professor Alexander Brodie talking about the Scottish Enlightenment. He was he was a little soldier from the beginning. He he used to hang out with the French garrison a lot in a jack show. And that was Michael Brewers on the life of Napoleon. and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Charlotte Hodgman and I'm Features Editor for BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. You can find the magazine in all good newsagents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe dash today for our latest subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. To find out more about all of these digital formats, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. We've also recently launched on Kobo. You'll find us under the e-magazine section on kobo.com. Now, before we begin our first interview, we have a short advertisement break. Listeners to the History Extra podcast are eligible for a fantastic offer with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Stay tuned to this podcast for details of your 10% discount. Professor Michael Brewers is the author of a new two-part biography of Napoleon, the first volume of which covers the years from 1769 to 1805 and draws upon a newly published set of his correspondence. Reviews editor Matt Elton met up with him to talk about his research, beginning with the earliest years of Napoleon's life. Certainly, I think, um, being a, a certain kind of Corsican... Um, and coming from a certain kind of Corsican family obviously had a permanent influence on him, but not in the way that the stereotypical vision would have it. I think this is where um, the first couple of chapters of my book um, really do have something new to say. It's not new in the fact that we should we don't know all this because there have been some marvellous Corsican historians of Corsica working for several years developing all of this and I happen to be the chap who came along um, and tapped into their work but also because I work on the Western Mediterranean, I work on Italy, I think I bring a certain kind of expertise to it. Corsica is a complicated place in the sense that it's two places. There's the Corsica of the mountains, of the interior 
that's very much a poor land, an isolated country, shepherd country, small villages, um, a vendetta culture, very isolated. And too readily, Napoleon and his family are associated with that world. They're nothing to do with it. They come from Ajaccio, which is one of four middle-sized towns that cling to the coast of Corsica, that were founded mostly by the Genoese um, in the sort of late 15th, 30th, 16th centuries, and indeed Napoleon's ancestors and almost everybody from Ajaccio who was, for want of a better word, middle class or upper class, were descended from these Italian settlers from Liguria, from the, from the land around Genoa. Uh, they were very proud of it. They didn't intermarry with the people of the mountains, the insulars they used to call them. The, the two cultures mixed, obviously, because they did business with each other. They didn't like each other, but they had dealings with each other. But say the insulars weren't allowed to live within the walls of Ajaccio. None of Napoleon's family, and we can trace it back from the hatch-matched and dispatched records of Ajaccio right back to the, when the town was founded in the 1520s, where he never intermarried with each other. Um, you know, so this gives you a very different vision of Napoleon's background. These people were civilised, they were town dwellers, they prided themselves on having a Renaissance humanist education. Uh, most of his family were lawyers, some of them in the local military. Um, and he, I think, throughout his life, once he grows up mm. and gets into his 20s, he absorbs a lot of that. And you can see a lot of that um, in what he thinks a civilised society should be. I mean, what other impressions do we get of the world of his you know, childhood, his youth? He had a very happy childhood. Um, his parents were fairly well-to-do people. His mother, particularly from a very prominent family in Ajaccio. Um, his father had a few bad business dealings in, in his early life, but became very much a, a very successful lawyer. Um, so they, they were a very happy family. They had a nice but not spectacular house on the, the south side on the edge of the town, not right dead in the centre. Um, he loved his parents very much. I mean, one of the great myths of Napoleon is that he developed this hatred of his father because his father collaborated with the French and turned over. Um, the correspondence shows no trace of that. He was, he and his, his um, elder brother Joseph were very loyal to their father's memory. He was, he was a little soldier from the beginning. He, he used to hang out with the French garrison a lot in Ajaccio. Um, you know, he, he used to hang out with them when he was a little boy. Uh, and um, he sort of scandalised his mother by preferring, preferring sort of army hardtack rations to the beautiful meals that she and her maid used to cook up for him. Yes. Yes. And, he, and that, that marked him, I think, from a very early age. He was quite a Spartan sort of person. He liked roughing it. How far is it true to say that Napoleon rejected his early identity? And how far is it true to say he shaped himself a new one? He rejects the identity he tries to take on as a teenager and as a young 20-something, that of the great Corsican guerrilla fighter, that of the liberator, the liberator, the guy who's going to lead a united Corsica. And the image he develops of, of himself as this isolated, misunderstood, romantic, melancholy figure. These are youthful fads, mm. and they go away. But I think the defining influence on Napoleon is twofold. One, because he's a remarkably intelligent man, is what he reads. 
He's, he's an intellectual, not the kind of intellectual that um, a left-wing academic would warm to, but a man who's very widely read in the culture of his own times, uh, a man who's very up-to-date with technology, you might say, scientific discovery. You know, I mean, if, if Napoleon were alive today, he'd, he'd be the one saying to you, no, no, you, you want to move, move on from an iPhone, Samsung, you want a Samsung, you know, you want a Samsung, Josephine and me have Samsungs, you, you, you move on from that, you move on from that. Um, he was that sort of person. But the largest single influence on him was the French army. Okay. He went to military academy very young. And almost in spite of himself, he takes to the collective life of the barracks, to military discipline. No one has to beat this into him. It's the most natural thing in the world. Mm. And that, if you're looking for the single greatest mark of Napoleon, that doesn't come from inside himself, that's it. Mm. Fantastic. I mean, talking about his military um, identity, how did other people regard him early on in his career? His first big posting was at the siege of Toulon during the French Revolution. Toulon at the time was held by a collection of French rebels and pr principally the British Navy. Napoleon was given, in, given charge of the artillery batteries and really impressed everybody, both his commanding officers and the French political commissars who were sent down by the Republican government you know, to oversee the political side of the fighting. He impressed them deeply. Um, but then he, he didn't so much get himself into trouble, but he refused a posting that was a hot potato to put down a peasant rebellion in the west of France. He didn't want to do it. I don't think it was so much he was, he always claimed it was because he didn't want to fight other Frenchmen. Um, I think that's hypocrisy. What he was worried about was he was in the artillery, which was the elite arm. They were the intelligentsia of the army. They were the bright boys. And uh, you know they were the technocrats, the geeks, and this would have meant an infantry command, and he didn't want to be taken away from that. So he, his career goes into the doldrums for a long time. He doesn't really come out of it until in in 1796, when he's still in his late, he's still only in his late twenties. He's given command of the army of Italy, which is the least important of the three sectors the war has been fought on, but it's still command of a whole army group. And at that point, a lot of people are saying, who on earth is this guy? You know, who, who's this skinny little scruffy kid with the funny accent who can't speak? I mean, is his name Napoleone or Napoleon? Is he Bonaparte? Is he Bonaparte? What, you know, who, who is he? Where did you get him from? <laughs> He's a political appointment and he knows that because one of the most influential guys in the French government at that time, Paul Barras. Um, he's kind of taken Napoleon under his wing. He sets him up with Josephine. Josephine was Barras' mistress and he wants rid of her. So he pushes her Napoleon's way, that kind of thing. And it's a political appointment. But, but Barras has seen Napoleon in action at Toulon and knows that this guy is a talent, even though Barras isn't much of a soldier himself. And the guy in the war ministry who will become Napoleon's right arm in his early years, and again at Waterloo, is a guy called Lazare Carnot. Carnot was a very hard-line left-wing Republican. He was a Jacobin. He was a made of Robespierre's. But he's re-emerged as war minister. And Bonaparte goes to see Carnot and said, look, while I was down in Toulon, and then I got posted to Nice, I've been studying the Western Alps. I've been studying the Italian front. Look, these are my notes, right? These are all my notes. These are my charts. These are my 
outside door of the car and thinks, who the hell is this kid? Yeah, all right, yeah, I'll give you a chance. So at that time, he thinks, who is he? When he gets to Italy, a lot of the guys he finds uh, there are guys like uh, André Massina, who will become one of his senior commanders, case in point, uh, Murat, who will become his brother-in-law, his cavalry commander, the king of Naples. Murat, he's known before in Paris, and they're of an age, and Murat likes him and respects him and kind of looks up to him, but Massina and some of the older generals that who is this 20-something kid? Mm. He has to impress them in Italy, and he does. Um, but there again, if you take a wider view of Napoleon, he has a great publicity machine. I think Philip Dwyer is very right to talk about that in his biography, but I think he overplays it. That Napoleon builds up his victories in Italy, which were spectacular. They were very important. He almost loses several of them, but he brings them off. He defeats the Austrians. He basically conquers the north of the country. Kicks the Austrians out. This builds up a huge reputation inside France. But inside the sort of the Austrian high command, they're sitting saying, look, we lost our nerve. I mean, he got lucky. You know, the, 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 they don't go away thinking. The enemy doesn't go away thinking that Napoleon is this military genius we've got to be afraid of. They're hauling their own commanders over the carpet and saying, why did you let this fool over, you know, overrun you? It's a kind of a replay of the North African campaign in, in the Second World War. You know, I mean, look, why did you let Rommel get this far? All you need to do is get your act together, put a decent general in there, and we'll beat him. You know, and that's the view of the Austrians. And again, the Egyptian campaign is played up in France as a great success. But the French government know, Napoleon knows, and above all, the men who served with him in Egypt know that it was a complete disaster. He blew it terribly. In many ways, it's a worse defeat and a less, less excusable defeat than Russia in 1812. Well, that's my personal opinion. So when he really has to take on his first major war, major campaign, which is in 1805, where Volume 1 ends, Napoleon may have built up a great reputation for himself with the French public. But those of the French public who can read, who can bother to read, a very small number of Frenchmen, they think Napoleon has an amazing reputation. Um, he's regained a lot of the credibility he's lost with a lot of the other senior French commanders by the very good work he's done in creating an army in the channel camps. But he hasn't used it yet. And the Russians and the Austrians, who are his major opponents, are not intimidated by him at all. Mm. Not at all. Who is he? Well, he's the guy who blew Egypt. He's the guy who ran us out of Italy. No, he didn't run us out of Italy. We, we lost it, we won't make the same mistake again. So there's that kind of split between different perceptions. Yes, him. there are two very different perceptions of Napoleon. One is he's the military genius who conquered Italy. There are three perceptions. One is the military genius who conquered Italy. The other is, this is the chap who got lucky in Italy and who made a complete mess of Egypt. We can beat him. The Austrians and the Russians aren't scared. And the third, which is actually the most important, is the impression that's built up on him by his colleagues, by his subordinate commanders, and most of all by his men, that this is a good general. This We came here as raw conscripts. We're an army now. Mm. We're properly trained. We're properly led. We have faith in him. And that, but that's the, the insider's view is the most important. Talking about um, the effects on 
his own personality. Do you agree with Philip Dwyer, who we've mentioned, um, that his experiences in Egypt and Syria strengthened his contempt for humanity, as he puts it? No, I don't. And it was one of the things that spurred me to write my own book. And I don't get me wrong, I have the highest respect for Philip. He's a friend, he's a drinking companion. Um, but that remark struck me as no, I can see why Philip thinks as he does. But I really disagree. I think it's maybe a different view of human nature. I think Napoleon, in certain circumstances, has that streak in him. He has a very hard, cynical streak in him. Um, and I think it's more to do with particular situations, in coping or not coping with particular sets of circumstances, than with his character as a whole and how he deals with the world. Egypt brings out the absolute worst in Napoleon. Um, I think it's one of the few times in his early career where he gets delusions of grandeur. Um, uh, we'll see what the correspondence of the later years reveals. Um, he's certainly not like that immediately before, immediately after. He's a very cautious, calculating man. But I don't think I really don't believe he has a contempt for humanity simply because he's too imbued with enlightened progressive ideals and so much of his public career when he's not fighting wars and even sometimes when he is is concerned with bringing about particularly material and educational progress. This is the man who helps well shall we say, who facilitates the creation of the modern French educational system. The lycée, the university, he takes this thing by the scruff of the neck, turns it over to the experts and says, look, what we need is something modern and progressive here. I think he's too interested in the world around him, in progress, in science, um, to, to say that he has a contempt for humanity if he spends so much of his time when, when he's not leading armies and you know, yeah, you can't get away from it, killing hundreds of thousands of men. Mm. But when he gets time to settle down and say, what kind of country do we want? What kind of society do we want? That doesn't come across. No. And, and certainly it doesn't come across the way he deals with his soldiers. What would you say um, of his later campaigns that this book covers were his highest points? Up to 1805, mm. his highest point for me was for me, really, is the first Italian campaign of 1796-97. Um, he takes over a very run-down, dispirited army. Um, he doesn't do it all by himself, but he gets them better organised, he galvanises them. Uh, a lot of it's through organisation, a lot of it's through simply trusting your colleagues, which he's very good at. He has that in common with Lord Nelson. He's very good at simply trusting you to do your job properly, to carry out your orders and leave you alone to do it. Um, and he wins a series of very important victories, first against the Japanese and then against the Austrians, um, and many times against the odds. Military victories that require fording rivers, that require taking bridges and blowing them up and building new ones, that you know require... A lot of technical skill that he manages, that he doesn't do himself, but he knows who to delegate to to manage it. Um, he shows himself in battle quite a lot. He's not afraid to get hurt. He's not afraid to get wounded. And he, I think, against 
with an untried army, a dispirited army, against very good Austrian troops, I would say that is his high point on the battlefield. Because in the second Italian campaign, at the Battle of Marengo, he gets lucky. He loses it. Well, he wins it, he loses it, and he wins it again. <laughs> yeah. Let's put it that way. And he always said himself, he was very open about it, I lost it in the morning and I won it back in the afternoon. <laughs> you know, and the Austrians panic after this and they, they, they give up. You know, they, they, they agree to an armistice surrender when really they were fools too. They, they still had the wherewithal to fight on. So the first Italian campaign in the field is the high point. But for me, in volume one, the real high point is the way he takes an army the bulk of whom are raw, unwilling peasant conscripts between 1802 and 1805 and welds them into the Grande Armée, into probably the greatest military machine Europe has ever seen up to that date, um, from a mixture of veterans of the Revolutionary Wars, the Royal Army, who, who are not the majority of the army by then, their ranks have been thinned, uh, and mainly these new peasant conscripts, most of whom have not no enthusiasm for the army or the French Revolution or anything at all. Mm. And in that very prolonged period, he takes this unprepossessing material and forges a genuinely great army that he will lead very well for a long time. And that to me is his greatest military achievement before 1805. That's fantastic, thank you. And we've talked a lot about his military relationships. What does he write about his private life? It depends who's writing too, but I mean, what emerges is a very different person. Um, his relationship with Josephine, his first wife, um, is often traumatic, very torrid, highly charged. And what emerges in his writing to Josephine, I'm inclined to think, is he cha channels all his almost boyish teenage arrested development of 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 personal relations into this relationship with Josephine. The letters are incredibly passionate, very touching. Whereas, say, his first proper girlfriend, Desiree, Desiree Clary, who was from a family in Marseille, they're kind of normal letters. They're very teasing, a little bit older, they're very teasing, a bit, a bit condescending, but in a nice way. You know, sort of, you know, well, if I were you, I'd get your act together about, you know, about that. You know, you've got yourself a piano. Well, let me tell you, I think you better hire a piano teacher because I don't, you know, it's that kind of thing. What new impression do we get of his character from this correspondence? I think it brings out something that we've always known, but that we can now prove in detail. Um, that this is a... He's not so much a complex person, he's a multifaceted person, I think is, is how Stephen England put it. And, this, and I think this proves him right. This is a man with a great many interests. Um, and although he's a very serious person, obviously he is. I mean, he's the greatest man of his times. Um, he wears the learning lightly in the sense that, oh, you know, I read this book the other day and it was so interesting. Um, yeah, here's the reference. Not that, you know, I know everything there is to know about. He's, he's not like that. I think the other side, is it, coming back to the military relations that it brings out, um, is how he was very good, rather like Lord Nelson, as I've said before, about delegating. Um, he's, he's not a micromanager, say, in the way the Duke of Wellington was. Um, he, he says, all right, very, he can say very clearly and precisely, these are my orders. 
This is what you have to do. Now get on with it. And finally, um, what impression of the man would you like readers to leave the book with? Um, well, we live in a postmodern world, don't we? You know, it's up to the reader to decide. But my impression of him is he's a, a highly intelligent man. Someone who balances very strong emotions with iron self-discipline and prudence. Very like Wellington in that respect. I've just finished reading a book about the Duke of Wellington by Rory Muir. Um, although he may have very powerful emotions and a hair-thin temper at times, usually he can control it unless he thinks he needs to use it. He's a he's cautious man in many ways. He's very calculating. Um, he is in the period we're dealing with, certainly, a man with no delusions of grandeur, a man who knows he's living on the edge um, and behaves accordingly, steering a, danger, a course through very dangerous waters and doing it very well. Because of that self-control, because of his intelligence, I think the other thing that I feel is important to remember about him is he has an eye for talent and ability. Whether it's in Hortense's stepdaughter, on a personal level, and even on a even on a professional one, she's one of the few people in his private life he'll talk to about public affairs. Um, and certainly, say in his military commanders, and above all in his chief ministers, this is a man who knows how to choose good people. He doesn't surround himself with weaklings and yes men. He likes people who tell it to him straight, and he he trusts them to get on with it. I think I think in that that's a real leader. Mm. I think the other. The last thing that I would like readers to take away is something the new correspondence has given us. When he's still a teenager, when he's 15, 16, that's when his father dies. And Napoleon takes the family's affairs in hands. This is the boy, a schoolboy. I mean, someone who has just barely sat his GCSEs, who will write to the, the Controller General of, of France, that the King's, the, the Prime Minister, the French equivalent of the Royal Prime Minister saying, what about my father's pension? And who goes to Paris as a teenager and demands an audience with him? Who writes to the Governor General of Corsica and says, what's happening to my family? What, where's the money my family's owed? Mm. You, know, you don't have to make up a lot of the mythological tales that have been made up about Napoleon's youth, about him organising snowball fights and things like that at schoolyard, which are hokum. Mm. You only have to read the letters that this is a leader. That was Michael Brewers. Michael's book, Napoleon, Soldier of Destiny, is out now, published by Faber and Faber. And now we have a short advertisement break. Listeners to the History Extra podcast are eligible for a fantastic offer with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools. With over 10 years' experience, the 100-strong Dublin, New York, and Oregon-based customer support team is on hand 24-7. Seamless e-commerce solutions mean that your business can be taking money in minutes on a website that is scaled to look beautiful on any computer or or handheld device. It starts at only £5 a month, and if you buy it for a year, you'll get a free domain name. So start your free trial today. No credit card required. And as a History Extra podcast listener, you'll receive 10% off your first purchase by using the offer code HISTORY. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Before our next interview, it's time to catch up with the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. Nazi scientists secretly researched the possibility of dropping malaria-infected mosquitoes behind enemy lines during the Second World War, a German academic has claimed. According to reports in the Daily Telegraph, Dr Klaus Reinhardt claims that SS leader Heinrich Himmler ordered research into the lifespans of different mosquito breeds to try and find one that would remain alive long enough to be dropped into enemy territory. The mosquito research had to remain secret because Germany, alongside the Allied nations, had signed up to the 1925 Geneva Protocol banning the use of biological and chemical weapons. In other news... Untold stories about what life was like in neighbourhoods across the country during the First World War are to be broadcast by the BBC. As part of the World War I at Home project, BBC journalists across the country have for the past 18 months been working with the Imperial War Museums to uncover stories about familiar neighbourhoods where the wounded were treated, crucial frontline supplies were made and prisoners of war were held. From Monday the 24th of February, 1,400 accounts of the war, all linked to specific places across the UK, will be broadcast on local radio and regional television and made available at the BBC's online portal bbc.co.uk forward slash WW1. Meanwhile, researchers may be on the verge of solving the mystery of what caused American Civil War submarine H.L. Hunley to sink in 1864. H.R. Hunley was the first submarine to sink an enemy ship, but it too sunk during the attack off the coast of South Carolina. Now, a chemical bath will peel away the final layer of sediment that covers the exterior of the hull and the Hunley's interior. By removing the material, researchers should be able to undertake more precise analysis of holes in the hull and its condition, as well as the Hunley's speed in the Atlantic Ocean. Thanks for that, Emma. And don't forget, you can stay up to date with all the latest history news at historyextra.com. The 18th century is often described as a golden age for Scotland, a period characterised by great scientific and intellectual achievements that many feel helped shape the modern world. I caught up with Professor Alexander Brodie at the Hunterian Museum at Glasgow University, where some of the most brilliant thinkers of the, of the Scottish Enlightenment are still remembered. Alexander, we're standing um, in the rather wonderful Hunterian Museum in Glasgow, um, surrounded by glass cases of various mm. objects, um, talking about the Scottish Enlightenment. So can you maybe just explain to us what, what was at the heart of the Enlightenment in Scotland? What was at 
the heart of the Enlightenment in Scotland was really something at the heart of the Enlightenment in Europe more generally, but there were certain Scottish things about the essence of Enlightenment, which meant that in this country, the Enlightenment spoke with a Scottish accent. What was uh, central to Enlightenment speaking generally uh, were two things. First of all, the idea that um, people should think for themselves and not simply give their assent to other folk who have got a reputation for speaking with authority. It's not that you disregard what authorities have got to say. Uh, instead, what it is, is something more subtle, namely that you listen to them and then you think, well, what they're saying is sufficiently interesting for me to think really seriously about it and decide whether it's right or not. Mm. So that you approach authorities not with uh, uh, assent, but with a, a critical frame of mind. So you critique their ideas. And this because... Um, at the end of the day, authorities are only human and they may be wrong. And if they, are in, if they are speaking with authority and they've got some power, then the sooner we know that they're wrong, the better. So that's one aspect of um, enlightenment, which is really essential. The second aspect I have in mind is um, the idea of toleration. Because critique, critiquing authorities is all very well, but it's got to be uh, a safe thing to do. Mm. Um, you, you listen to what they've got to say and suppose you think they're wrong, dare you say it? Well, one point to make is that if you, if you keep your mouth shut, you don't tell people what, what you know that's wrong about what the experts are saying, then your own ideas will not be critiqued and you won't in the end even know whether they're any good or not. So it's got to be, um, it's got to be possible for people with ideas to put their ideas into the public domain um, with the, the assurance that they will not be imprisoned or even killed on, on account of what they've got to say. So these, these were ideas which were um, around in Europe at about this time, during the 18th century. And what I want to add to that is that they were very much present in Scotland too, and especially in three of the great institutions of Scotland, first of all the universities, secondly the Kirk, the Church of Scotland, and thirdly the law. And it's very interesting that, that these are the great centre of uh, Scottish Enlightenment because these are the three great institutions that have a privileged status in Scotland as a result of the Acts of Union. That's to say these are protected institutions and whatever was decided by the Parliament in Westminster, the powers and the rights of these three institutions could not be withdrawn. Mm. So that whatever was going on in England or elsewhere in the United Kingdom, um, Scotland would remain identifiably Scottish because it had these three really tremendous institutions. And so um, there were enlightened people in these institutions and because they were very distinctively Scottish, it meant that the Enlightenment in Scotland spoke with a distinctively Scottish voice. So the Enlightenment span looked at different disciplines. Um, did they learn from each other at all and share ideas? There was a, a good deal of sharing of ideas. I, I said at the beginning that the Enlightenment is all about thinking for yourself. But thinking for yourself doesn't mean that you shouldn't think with others as well. Mm. And uh, in the Scottish Enlightenment, 
we find quite spectacularly um, a clubability, a sociability, people gathering together in order to share their ideas, to read papers, to have uh, orderly conversations, uh, and these groups, the societies which you find uh, in all the cities in, in, in Scotland, uh, were composed of folk who, in a sense, were specialising in arts or specialising in, in science, but in, in a way they were not truly specialists. What they were were generalists operating at a very, very high level. And you would find people making major discoveries in the sciences who were also uh, highly articulate on, on uh, matters uh, relating to arts and humanities and vice versa. They were talking with each other. And the idea was that um, something might spark a brainwave in you. That could, it could be coming from any direction. Um, a scientist could be learning from from an ancient historian or, or from a philosopher, uh, just as a, a philosopher could be learning from the uh, from the scientists. And indeed, there was a general perception of that period, following on from the, the phenomenal success of the theories of Isaac Newton, that there that the, the way to find out about the world is actually to look at it. There, there is a certain, um, a certain perspective that you get on the world, looking at it from the point of view of a scientist. And the philosophers were adopting this view as well. And um, perhaps the, the defining concept of the Scottish Enlightenment was what David Hume called the science of man, which is particularly the human mind, the way the faculties work, the way our beliefs are formed. And this is not, in Hume's view, an a priori study. What you do is just look at human beings, listen to human beings, find out what you can about human beings, get as big a database as you can about human beings, so that um, you need to be uh, not just keeping your eyes open and watching your, your friends and your enemies, but also finding out about history. And uh, Hume, in his own day, was far better known as a historian than he was as a philosopher. Okay. But they were all like this. Mm. It wasn't just Hume who was adopting an empirical scientific approach to philosophical matters. They were all doing this. So they regarded themselves as scientists yeah. as well. It wasn't just natural scientists talking to the philosophers, because the philosophers regarded themselves as natural scientists talking to other natural scientists. Okay. So you don't get the kind of... Uh, vision that you get these days. So it's better to, to, to think of what was going on in education in Scotland uh, in terms of a, a generalist approach rather than a specialist approach. You should know about as many things as you can, have a broad education, not just a deep one, because um, you can learn from all of the disciplines, not just from your one chosen one. Ordinary working Scots experience of the Enlightenment have been because we're talking about you know intellectuals at the top of their field. Um, would, would your ordinary Scot have noticed any differences during this period in their own lives? There are some differences they would have noticed because, um, as, as I was saying, the Scottish Enlightenment is as much about science as it is about anything else. And the reason I say that is that once you give, start off with a, an account of enlightenment in terms, not of particular doctrines, but in terms of 
an attitude to life that one should one should look out upon the world with a, a critical intelligence. Well, this applies to all things, um, not just not just to some. And so we find the, sci- the, the scientists working in the field, say, of chemistry and of physics, um, making discoveries. We find agricultural science beginning to flourish. Okay. There were various problems with uh, with uh, the the surface of Scotland in terms of its agricultural usefulness. Mm. There were lots of boglands. There were very there were, mar- there were huge marshlands, endless, endless acres, and these had to be drained, and special means for cultivating them had to be discovered. And Scottish thinkers within the universities were thinking about, about these things too. So just in terms of in- improvement to Scottish agricultural performance, the Enlightenment certainly made a difference. Scotland also entered the, the ever-growing slave trade. Now, how did this sit with Enlightenment values? Um, is this something that they agreed with or they, they challenged? We hear quite a lot these days about something called the dark side of Enlightenment. Mm. And what people have in mind is the slave trade. And they know that there were, um, that there were Scots who were very, very deeply uh, implicated in the slave trade. And this, as I say, is called the dark side of enlightenment. But I think that phrase needs watching. It's potentially quite dangerous. Um, There's no suggestion in this that the the enlightenment, there are two parts to it, an enlightened side and a dark side. Mm. What was dark here was was anti-enlightenment, and the enlightenment was... uh, anti the slave trade. The whole point about the, the metaphor of enlightenment is that it's about light, and light is seen to be on the side of the good. And um, if you think of it as an intellectual metaphor, it's using your critical intelligence to work out uh, what's true, what's false, what's right, and what's wrong. And more or less, to a man, I mean, quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of folk um, who were very active in the enlightenment made reference to the slave trade. Did speak about it. Um, they were totally hostile to it. They thought that the whole idea of slavery cuts across human nature and is an, a negation of human nature. You find, uh, for example, Adam Smith in his um, great work on moral philosophy, the uh, theory of moral sentiments, raging on the pages of the book uh, against those who were implicated in the slave trade. He thought that they were the trash of Europe, uh, not fit to wash the feet of the um, people that they were uh, enslaving. I don't think we can really um, do an interview in the Hunterian without actually talking about the, the wonderful collections that are in here. Um, it was founded, wasn't it, to house collections of um, William um, Hunter. Um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about him and his contribution to, to this period? Hunter was uh, a student at Glasgow University. Um, he did. He worked his way through the arts degree, and then went on to do uh, medicine under one of the major figures of the Enlightenment, William Cullen. Um, came to specialise in obstetrics. Mm-hmm. He went to London, where he set up a practice, and um, rose very fast. He was a distinguished uh, member of the medical community. He became um, a. Uh, he became a physician to, to the Queen 
uh, had a huge reputation, but he was a man of an inquiring mind, going far beyond uh, the actual job of a doctor uh, facing his patients. He was interested in medical practice in general, in, in chemistry. He was interested in medical instrumentation and started collecting medical instruments um, from, uh, from uh, very early times, right up to, to his own time. He had a huge collection of these. He was also um, collecting medical samples, as we say, mm-hmm. including organs. We've seen quite a few, haven't we? We've seen quite a few of these, yes including uh, organs in, in jars, a, a number of which, including the, organ, the, the, the organs in jars that he himself had, a number of which are, are still on show in the Ontario Museum. But he went far beyond that. He was interested in, in humanity generally, one might say. This is a man who was a product of a generalist education, and he had a generally inquiring mind. And, and just finally, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. If you had, to, who would you say made the, the greatest contribution to the Scottish Enlightenment? If you had to choose one, one person from this this, this period, I said I'd put you on the spot. <laughs> I think my favourite philosopher and thinker, generally, of the Scottish Enlightenment was Adam Smith. Mm-hmm. He was a, um, a student here. He was then a professor here. And in his last few years, he was the Lord Rector of the university. And he, during that period, he said that his time as professor of, of, of uh, philosophy at Glasgow was the most useful and the happiest time of his life. If I can be autobiographical just for a moment, I guess you were expecting me as a philosopher to say Hume, and happily... I stand in a, a curious relationship to both of these uh, mm-hmm. men because my, my chair, the chair of logic and rhetoric, is one which was occupied by uh, Adam Smith. And when Adam Smith permitted, Hume was then rejected for that same post. Well, thank you very much. That was a great talking to you. I think I'm going to go and have a little look at some more of the... Uh jarred brains that rushes around the corner. Thank you very much, Alexander. My pleasure. That was Alexander Brodie. You can read Alexander's feature on the Scottish Enlightenment in the February issue of BBC History magazine, available now in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. Also in this month's magazine, find out about a Victorian royal murder scandal, meet some of London's most sinful inhabitants and discover the backstory to the current Hollywood film The Monuments Men. Just before we go, here's a reminder that BBC History magazine is holding two-day events at Bristol's M-Shed on the 15th and 16th of March. We begin with a Vikings Day on Saturday, followed by a First World War Day on the Sunday. In each case, you'll get the chance to hear talks from a range of expert historians and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more information and to find out how to purchase tickets to these events, visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. You can also keep in touch with us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at History Extra and like us on facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Plus, make sure you visit our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest history news, blogs, image galleries, features, quizzes and much more. 
Next week, we'll be finding out about the genocide of the indigenous community of Tasmania in the 19th century and talking to Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson about the historic importance of the River Nile. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Glasgow, Oxford and Bristol and was produced by Jack Fletcher.